if you had the opportunity, and you rarely do, if you had the opportunity to choose your neighbors, what would they be like? Would they be kind? Would they be people that would be long-suffering? Would they go out of their way to bring you cookies on your birthday? What would those people be like? Here's another question. Well, same question, uh, maybe a different list. Would they be loving, joyful, peace, peaceful? Uh, would they be patient, kind, good, gentle, faithful? Would they be self-controlled people? What I have just read you is the list of the fruit of the Spirit. What God does in the life of His people is He molds them and He makes them more like the Lord Jesus so that they are full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Isn't that the kind of people you would want as your neighbor? If you were to meet that kind of a person or that kind of a family, wouldn't you sing with Mr. Rogers? Won't you be my neighbor? Well, sure. Who wouldn't want those kind of people to be your neighbor? Well, I'll tell you exactly who does not want to be you, you, who does not want that kind of a person to be their neighbor? People of the world. People that are marked by the worldview that is anti-God. Oh, they'll accept people that are loving and patient and kind in their neighborhood as long as you leave your religion at church. And you don't bring it into our neighborhood. My dear wife, teaching public school on the college level, as she is engaged in right now, this week, will be hearing informative speeches from her students. Now, when she gives this assignment, she assigns them the responsibility of looking into another country, a foreign country, and pulling out some aspect of that country, that culture, and by way of a public address, inform the rest of the audience, their classmates, of that particular aspect of this culture or this country independently without prior conversation or knowledge two of her students this week will be giving speeches on persecution political persecution religious persecution in Russia and Egypt from which both of these students along with their families, 
fled to this country for refuge and safety. One of the missionaries that we support was followed, harassed, surveilled for an extended period of time. It became so intense, scrutinizing everything about their life, that on a sunny November afternoon, they got in the car, making it appear as though they were simply going for a drive, and they fled the country. They literally left with nothing except the clothes on their back. Now this kind of stress, affliction, persecution, harassment is is not something that we normally experience in this country, in this generation. We have been in a bit of a bubble wrap for a long period of time in this country. But it is not the case around the world. In the ancient world, the first century church struggled with persecution on a massive level. It started with the Jews, but quickly spread to persecution by the Romans. You've heard of stories of what Emperor Nero did to Christians in the city of Rome, accusing them of all kinds of malfeasance for which he was responsible, but he laid the blame on the Christians. They were a common scapegoat. He's well known for lighting Christians on fire to be his tiki torches to light up a darkened Rome. And then there's the Emperor Diocletian, early 4th century, who, in a series of executive orders, edicts, if you will, demanded that every church be destroyed throughout the Roman Empire, that every Bible to be found was burned, and that every Christian be required to sacrifice to Roman gods and goddesses or else. And the or else was their death. Diocletian's um, intention was to completely, permanently eradicate Christianity from the face of the globe. Romans persecuted Christians for a variety of reasons. Here are five. Christians were persecuted because they were deemed to be political subversives. They didn't swear allegiance to the state and to the emperor. The politically correct statement 
in antiquity, in, in, in ancient Rome for centuries, was Kaiser Curios, translated, Caesar is Lord. And the Christians said graciously, <laughs> I can't say that, because Jesus ho curios, Jesus is the Lord. There is no other. And I will go to my death in that declaration. Howard Voss, in his book Exploring Church History, wrote, quote, There was a union of religion and state in ancient Rome. Refusal to worship the goddess Roma or the divine emperor constituted treason. Unquote. Christians were not politically driven. Jesus said of him, himself to, uh, to Pilate, the Roman administrator in Jerusalem, John 18, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. But because they wouldn't bow to the emperor as God, Curios, they refused to serve in the army to a large degree. Be because of these things, they were, they were deemed to be political um, uh, subversives. Secondly, were perceived to be social subversives. They were upsetting the status quo. Christians did not make a, a public vocal statement about slavery. But initially, the bulk of people that were coming to faith in Christ were the poor and the slaves. And these people coming into a relationship with the Lord Jesus found freedom and honor and respect like they've never experienced before. And the social elites around them saw this, felt threatened. And the Christians were deemed to be social subversives. Third, they were regarded as religious subversives. The Romans were tolerant of other peoples and their gods as long as those other peoples didn't dis, didn't discount, didn't dismiss, didn't do away with the Roman and Greek pantheon. So as long as you didn't disturb our, um, our religion, we're not going to disturb you, and you can continue to worship whatever gods you want to worship. But the Christians said, there's only one God, and he is physically manifested in Jesus of Nazareth. Fourth, Christians were deemed to be economic subversives. They were upsetting the 
the ability of the normal man to make a living. When Paul went into Philippi, he cast out a demon that was living within the soul of a young slave girl. She was a fortune teller. And when Jesus, I'm sorry, when Paul cast out this demon in this young woman's life, her handlers no longer had the ability to make money by her. In the city of Ephesus, the power of the gospel affected the idol-making trade in that city. And, it's, and it threw the silversmiths into a conniption because their income was directly affected because of this gospel that was proclaimed throughout the region. Fifth, Christians were regarded as moral subversives because they got together regularly for what they call a a love feast. And at that love feast, they kissed each other, you know, with a holy kiss. And not only that, when they got together for these so-called love feasts, they practiced cannibalism. Following their leader, Jesus, they ate his body and they drank his blood. They were immoral cannibals in the eyes of the Romans. In a variety of different ways, the Christians had the reputation of bringing a different view of the world into their world. Acts chapter 17, verse 6 says, These men who have upset the world have come here also. So the people of the world proclaimed. And for this, Christians were persecuted. That's antiquity. Let's turn to the modern world. Article in 2002 titled, Buried Story of the Year, speaking of just last year, author Richard Ostling writes this, quote, A 2022 report from the Open Doors organization says, Persecution of Christians has reached the highest levels. This is just last year. Did you hear about this? No! That's why it's called the buried story of the year. Persecution of Christians has reached the highest levels since Open Doors began accumulating data for its annual World Watch List three decades ago. Hostile incidents have increased by 20% since just 2014. And some 360 million Christians. Did you wrap that mind, that number in your mind? 300 
60 million Christians? Fourteen percent of worldwide total are said to have faced persecution, harassment, or discrimination. Such an upsurge, continues Osling, such an upsurge in incidents of religious oppression of one kind or another, this last year among Christians has uh, that some, some journalists have declared this to be the buried story of the year among mainstream media. Listen to the testimony of Scripture of what we should expect. Matthew 5. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 24. They will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Peter says in his first epistle, chapter 4, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. 2 Peter 3, from from Paul's swan song, his last epistle. He wrote this from a Roman jail cell. I've been there in Rome. He wrote, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Our text this morning comes from John chapter 15. I invite you to turn there with me. I invite you to always, always bring a hard copy of the Scriptures with you. It will be for your betterment to look specifically at a particular page. John chapter 14, I'm sorry, chapter 15, well, 14, 15, and 16 are all part of what we call the upper room discourse given by Jesus just prior to his arrest, the sham trial that he went through, and then his execution. These are the last words of Jesus given to his men prior to his crucifixion. Jesus is telling them the very important things that they need to know. Over the last couple of weeks, we have talked about the importance, the centrality of abiding in Christ. The theme of these words by Jesus, verses 17 through 25, are very different. 
they are not words of encouragement and, 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 and strength and joy. They are very much the opposite. But words nonetheless that must be heeded and followed. I invite you to turn with me to uh, John 15 and follow along with me as I read. I'm going to begin at verse 17 and at verse 25. Jesus is speaking. This I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But but now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word which is spoken in their law. They hated me without a cause. Verse 17, the first verse in our text, harkens back to a statement Jesus said earlier that evening to his disciples, talking about the the responsibility, the necessity for them to love one another. That's how the world will know that they belong to Jesus, their love for one another. But he quickly turns to just the opposite when he says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. In eight verses of our text, the word hate shows up eight times. And Jesus says in verse 18, You know that it, the world, has hated me before it hated you. Now that word in the Greek text could be Um, rendered in the indicative mood, uh, a a mood that says this is a matter of fact. You know this to be true. And Jesus is, by way of a reminder, telling us what we already know. We know that Jesus was hated by the world. So he says, it hated me too. I mean, it hated me before it hated you too. That verb translated, you know, might also be in the imperative mood. 
the indicative and the imperative uh, have the same form in this particular verb, in this particular case. Meaning, and I, I think this is, this is um, what Jesus is saying, it is a command. He's not just saying, well, you know this to be true, and I'm telling you this by way of reminder. No, he's giving us a command. Know this. Wake up. Look and think about this soberly, truthfully, accurately. The world has hated me. Before it hated you. But as it has hated me, so it will hate you. Open up your eyes to the fact. You are not here on planet Earth to make everybody happy. You will not. Don't even try. You are wasting your breath, and you may be compromising the gospel. Know this, the world has hated me before it hated you. And you will know that the world hates you. You won't have to try hard to make the world hate you. No, they're going to find you all by themselves. Our text gives us five reasons why the world hates us. Five reasons why the world is anti-God and anti-Christian. Point number one. God hates, I'm sorry, the world hates those who are abiding in the vine, in Christ. It hates Christians because of the choice by God. Hated because of the choice by God. Look with me at verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Let me pause there. That's a... That's a uh, a, a universal maxim. It, it's, it's true. The world is going to love, accept, tolerate its own. We might give an expanded, amplified uh, explanation of the first half of 19 in this way. If you were of the world, but you're not my disciples... The world would love you, but they don't, because you're not. Here's why. Because, middle of verse 19, because you are not of the world. Why? I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Now, last week we looked at verse 16 that Jesus uttered in the very previous breath. 
Now, I know it's been a week since we looked at that text, but Jesus had just said this. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And as I explained last week, we do make choices for Jesus. We have to trust him. We have to believe in him. We have to submit to him. But we do so only after he chooses us. He doesn't choose us on the basis of our faith. He doesn't choose us on the basis of our knowledge. We have faith, we have knowledge, but that comes after his choice of us. His choosing of us is without condition. Why does he choose you? Why did he choose me as one of his children? I don't know. Other than to say he wanted to put certain individuals in his trophy cabinet of grace as a display of his mercy and kindness upon the undeserving, like me. Well, the, the, the world looks at that trophy case and he sees one guy in there whose name is Rob Martini. And went, what are you, what are you kidding? He's there? Yeah, because I chose to show mercy to that sinner. The world hates me. Hates all Christians. Why? Because Jesus chose us out of the world. We're not a part of the world anymore. It's as though he has plucked us up and placed us on the other side of the fence. Did we cross over the line ourselves? Did we hop the fence ourselves? No, he did that. He chose us. He made that happen. But because he did make that happen, the world looks, the world sees, the world understands, you're different. And they say, we don't want anything We don't want anything to do with you. And so we are rejected, hated because of that. Are they jealous? No. Because jealousy demands that I want something else that I don't have. And the unbelieving world doesn't want anything to do with God. They want to push God as far away as possible. And anyone attached to the Lord. Which leads us to point number two, second page of your notes. Christians are hated because of the relationship with God or because of their relationship with God. Look with me at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you? A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Remember last week we we talked about um, verse, uh, verse 15 that Jesus said two breaths ago in his conversation with the disciples. And he said there, no longer do I call you slaves, 
for the slave does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. Believers have a unique, special relationship with God. Our Lord Jesus calls us his friends. Be careful. That does not mean that we are now one of his peers, as though we're now on equal footing with Jesus. No, not in any, in, in, not in any way can we, can we argue that. No, from our point of view, he is still always only above us. He is the master. He is the Lord God Almighty. We are slaves. We are here looking to simply do his bidding. We are looking for the words, the commands, the instruction of the Lord, our master, and we are here to do that. We don't have a place, we don't have any place to to negotiate like a friend might have. So in, in this context of Jesus' relationship with the world, the believer's relationship with the world, we don't have the opportunity to stand alongside Jesus with the world as if there was a, a triangle here. We don't have a place where we can negotiate with how the world is going to treat us. A slave is not greater than his master. The slave is going to experience that which the master experiences. As they persecuted Jesus, so they will his slaves. As his slaves, we are commissioned as his representatives, his authorized, Holy Spirit-empowered representatives. We bear his message, his gospel, his good news is what we speak. And as we speak, we are speaking Jesus' words to this world. Now, there are some that won't persecute Jesus. Instead, they will trust his word. And so Jesus says in verse 20, if they persecute me, they will persecute you. Not everyone is going to persecute Jesus, but those who persecute Jesus are going to persecute his people. If they kept his word, he says at the end of verse 20, if they responded to that word, believed his word, accepted his word, received his word, obeyed his word. If they did that, and there would be some, including the disciples that are standing before him listening to this, if they received your word, kept your word, his word, they they will uh, keep your word also. As you, being the representative, the authorized representative of Christ, as you proclaim God's gospel message and the other people around trust that message, trust Jesus, well, as these, these disciples trusted Jesus with that, because of that message, 
so that message will be uh, will have that same effect on some but not on all because of this relationship that they have with God hatred comes to believers point number 3 hated because of ignorance of God or if you're writing notes hated because of ig ignore ants of God. Well, let me explain. Paul wrote in first, not, not, not first anything, uh, the book of Philippians, chapter 9. There's not nine chapters in Philippians. <laughs> oh, I think my mind is going away. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, he says, For this reason also God highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Paul here is is looking back in time to when Jesus ascended from earth back into heaven, and he was coronated. He was enthroned as the Lord of all. He had accomplished redemption for which he was sent into this world. It was done. And at that time, he was given that title, that rank, that, that medal, that ribbon of honor, Lord. He's the master, the ruler of the entire cosmos. And any who would live must bow the knee, submit to the Lord Jesus. We know from that passage of Scripture that every tongue will confess, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, wherever, everyone will bow. But now we have the opportunity to do so. Those who are opposed to God, those who are opposed to Christ, hate Christians for two reasons. Because of of their ignorance of God and their ignorance of God. That is, they don't know about God And they don't want to know about God. They are ignorant of Him, and they ignore Him. Now certainly there are some in the world's system, the anti-God system, that acknowledge that there is a God. And they might even acknowledge that God is the Creator. But unless they come to the Lord Jesus... And they bow before him, and they submit to him, and they seek to obey him and follow him until they acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord, Jesus Ho Christos, uh, uh, Ho Kurios, rather. Jesus is the Lord. Until they acknowledge that, they are estranged from God, have no relationship with God, demonstrate they they are, 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 are lost, have no hope. 
Romans chapter 3. Oh, I did it again. No, I don't want you to turn to chapter 3. I guess I was looking at some other note, some other. Okay, Romans chapter 1. I just need to slow down, I guess, huh? In Romans chapter 1, Paul says of people in the world, even those who might acknowledge that there is a God, he says, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made. So they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be, be wise, they became fools. Hated because of the choice of God, hated because of the relationship with God, hated because of ignorance of God. Fourth, Christians are hated by the world because of rebellion toward God. Look at verse 22 in our text. Jesus says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. Oh, that's interesting. If I had not come, Jesus says, and spoken to them, they would not have sin. All right, look at verse 24. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. Okay, so Jesus says here, if I hadn't said what I said... If I hadn't have done what I'd done, they would not have sin. These two verses have given rise to a false teaching that I am labeling ignorance is innocence. Which says, well, we're going to take Jesus at face value here. If he says... If he hadn't said what he said and hadn't done what he did, then these people wouldn't be in sin. Ergo, therefore, thus, we should not send missionaries to Africa or any other place in the world ever again because if they are ignorant, if they don't know what Jesus said and don't know what Jesus did, then... They don't have sin. It's by sending missionaries to these people and telling them what Jesus said and what Jesus did. It's by telling them these things that these people incur sin because there's the chance that they might reject what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done. So they're better off in their ignorance. They're better off not to know what Jesus said and what Jesus did. So don't tell them. 
Well, that kind of false teaching is not helpful. If you notice the New American Standard footnote at verse 22 and again at verse 24, you'll notice that the word sin is a reference to guilt. So what Jesus is saying here is, when, if, if I had not spoken to them as I did and not done for them and to them and in their presence so that they might see what I did, if, if I had not said what I said and did what I did, then they would not be in greater guilt. You see, from that passage of Scripture that I just read in Romans chapter 1, we know that every person around the globe whether they know of the Redeemer or not, every person around the globe is in a state of sin and guilt and condemnation. They are damned already, eternally separated from God if they were to die, regardless of whether they hear the gospel message because they have already turned away from God. They've turned away from the knowledge of God's power and His nature by what is seeable around us. They're characterized by the anti-God worldview of the world. And it's only God's gospel that will bring them hope. They're already guilty. So what Jesus is saying is, had I, had, I, had I not come to say what I said and do what I did, they would already be dead in their guilt because of their sin. But now, in his presence, or, or with his presence in the world, he is making known who he is, namely, that God was walking among the people of the world. And in that, ah, they have opportunity to trust. So, yes, if, 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 if Jesus had not spoken to them or did to them what he did, they would, um, they would not have as great a guilt, but they wouldn't have opportunity for salvation. And so we go as he commands us. And we send missionaries around the world in order to tell the people the message, the only message that will bring them hope and salvation. It's this message of the gospel. The lost who are enshackled with their sin and consequent guilt, they need to know who Jesus is. They need to know that he is connected with the Father. The world celebrates evil and applauds evil. Romans chapter 1, we read at the end of the chapter, 
although they know the ordinance of God, speaking of people of the world, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. They love their darkness. People of the world love their sin. And they don't turn from it. They live in open rebellion to God. Jesus said to uh, Nicodemus, John chapter 3, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And that's what we do. We go, as authorized agents, into the lives, into the world of those who are a part of the world, and we bring the light of Christ. Consequently, we expose the deeds of darkness. Paul said that was part of our job description, Ephesians chapter 5. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. And so for the unbeliever who is persisting in their unbelief and in their deeds of darkness, they are continuing in their rebellion against God, and because of their rebellion, they will hate the people of Christ. Fifth, point number five. Believers are hated because of revelation from God. Verse 25. They have done this, Jesus said, to fulfill the word which is spoken in their law. They hated me without a cause. I'm going to back up and I'm going to put on my Professor Hat, for just a moment. There are two kinds of prophecy in Scripture. Direct, fulfilled prophecy and indirect, fulfilled prophecy. Direct, fulfilled prophecy works like this. Prophet X says, this is going to happen. Well, in time, event B happens. And so people outside of the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, the time frame of this prophet and its fulfillment, they, they, they say, oh, this is that. Direct fulfillment of that prophetic statement. Indirect fulfillment works this way. There is an individual over here who has a particular set of circumstances. And he lives through that circumstances, circumstance and writes about that. Prophetically so. But to that person, he doesn't know that it's a prophetic, prophetic utterance. Person over here lives out a, 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 a familiar, common set of circumstances as that, but it's different. 
And here is the fulfillment of that in a perfect sense. It's an indirect fulfillment. Now in the text, you'll notice that at the end of verse 25 in the New American Standard text, those words are in small caps. That's the editor's way of alerting us to the fact that this is a reference to an Old Testament quotation. Now, it might be a precise quotation. It might be a a paraphrase of an Old Testament um, uh, statement. But the the editors want, want, want you to see what Jesus is doing or maybe one of the apostles is doing to to bridge the Old Testament and the New Testament and bring them together. This statement, they hated me without a cause, comes from the pen of King David. Now he said this twice, and we read it in Psalm 35 and again in Psalm 69. David says of himself, they hated me without a cause. Now, David was an imperfect man. He had flaws. Uh, Can you say Bathsheba? Uh, Think about uh, her husband, Uriah. Um, He he instructed his general uh, to to put Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, up on the front line. And then, uh, without telling him, he was to pull all of the guys back leaving Uriah all there by himself, front line, no support, no other archers, no other uh, shield-bearing guys. It was a death sentence. Now, there's lots of people looking at those um, incidences in David's life, and there were others. And they'd say, wait a minute, there there was all kinds of cause in David's life for which somebody ought to hate him. And yet he says of himself, they hated me without a cause. Okay, maybe he's referencing uh, another particular set of circumstances. Well, Jesus comes along and he borrows that statement and he says, this is now perfectly fulfilled in me, Jesus says. Because in Jesus, there is absolutely no room for any cause of accusation in any way. He was perfect, flawless, sinless in every respect. There was no reason for anybody to hate Jesus with cause. It was an indirect fulfillment. David spoke of his circumstances albeit imperfectly, and Jesus fulfilled that flawlessly. Because of the revelation from God through David, Jesus was hated, and so are those who follow him. Conclusion. Adoniram Judson, renowned missionary to Burma, endured untold hardship trying to reach the lost for Christ. 
For seven heartbreaking years, he suffered hunger and privation, and during this time, he was thrown into the Ava prison for 17 months. He was subjected to almost indescribable mistreatment. As a result, for the rest of his life, he carried the ugly marks made by the chains and iron shackles which cruelly bound him. Undaunting, undaunted, upon his release, he asked for permission to enter another province where he might resume his preaching of God's gospel. The godless ruler before whom Judson presented himself indignantly denied his request. And he said this, My people are not fools enough to listen to anything a missionary might say. But I fear they might be impressed by your scars and turn to your religion. And Elbert Hubbard wrote this. God God will not look you over for medals, degrees, or diplomas, but for scars. I want you to turn with me, if you would, to one last verse of Scripture in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. I want you to see it. Luke, chapter 6. Find verse 26. Luke 6, 26. Jesus is speaking, and he says this. Woe to you. Woe to you. When all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Oh, I want Rob to be my neighbor. <laughs> well, because he's so loving and he's so kind and he's so nice and he's so thoughtful and he's, he brings me cookies on my birthday. Well, he doesn't bake them. He knows that uh, his wife does that. He, rele- he leaves his religion in his church. Woe to us. If all people speak well of us, think we're just uh, the best thing since sliced bread. People of the world will be offended by the gospel we proclaim, or they will be drawn to the Savior because of it. Amy Carmichael wrote these wonderful lines in her book, Toward Jerusalem. She asks a series of rhetorical questions. Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on on foot or side or hand? 
I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascending star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent. Leaned on, leaned me against a tree to die and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me. I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be. And pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound, no, no scar? Let's pray. Father, you have welcomed us into your presence, and you have presented us with your words this morning to give us a, a, a warning, knowledge that there will come trouble and difficulty. The seeds have already been planted. Father, give us an unwavering faith, a confidence in your authority, in your might, in your power, in your deliverance. Remind us of whose we are. We have a message to proclaim, a responsibility to fulfill. no matter the cost. Amen.